0: History proves that dictatorships do not grow out of strong and successful governments, but out of weak and helpless
1: ones.
2: From Critical Frequency, I'm BB Mint, and this is Peace of Mind. I'm a singer, songwriter, and producer. I'm a dad, and I'm an American. Peace of Mind is an experiment. It's my new album, but I'm releasing it as a podcast. Today's episode is Can't Nobody Stop Us, and the theme of this episode is democracy and what happens when the pillars of democracy start to fall. Our guests today are Voice of America reporter Salem Solomon, retired Superior Court Judge Ladoris Cordell, and investigative journalist for Frontline on PBS, Neil Docherty let's talk about the four pillars of modern democracy here in america there's a legislative branch who makes the laws the executive branch that carries out the laws the judicial branch who interprets and enforces the laws in courtrooms and a free press that holds all of these to account but let's start with the judicial branch which i thought i knew something about but really i didn't know a whole hell of a lot so i sat down with judge ledoris cordell she taught me why an independent judiciary is essential in a healthy democracy.
3: I'm trying to do my best to educate people about the judiciary. It is the third branch of government, and it is the least dangerous. Until, and I speak now under Trump, the judiciary has become very dangerous. I'm talking about the federal. Federal judges are appointed for life. And it's stunning because without that sturdy independent branch, of our government, democracy is doomed.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a pillar. Of
3: democracy. Absolutely. Do you know that there's nothing in the Constitution that says there are any qualifications you have to have to be appointed to the Supreme Court by the president so Trump could nominate his daughter? And there's nothing in the Constitution that says how many Supreme Court justices there have to be. Right now we have nine. Once there were six, once there were 10. And confirmation hearings, there were none in the beginning. The first Chief Justice was John Jay, appointed in 1789. His confirmation hearing lasted two days. That was it, he was done, ready to go. So it's time we become more informed about who are these people in black robes who have so much control over our lives. As a judge, I have all the power. You coming into my courtroom, that's my house. Mm-hmm. I am the producer, director. I tell you when <laughs> to speak, when to sit down, when to stand up. And I make decisions about your life. It could be whether or not you get to keep your kids. And then, of course, on the criminal side, right? Mm-hmm. Who I can take your liberty away from you. I can sentence you to death. Now, interestingly, you know, there are law schools all around the country, right? There's no schools that teach judging. Could be a lawyer who's been sitting at a desk doing contracts and transactional work. Decide, I want to be a judge. So you apply or you run for a judgeship and you're a judge. So you leave your office and now you got a role. Wow. Go to work. Now go ahead and decide who gets custody of the kids. You have no training. You have no background. Or decide on a criminal case. Set bail here. You have no training. It's and like who it's, a it's Congress. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. It's shocking. It's, yeah. Isn't it stunning, though? Because you wouldn't go get brain surgery from a foot doctor.
2: No, that's crazy. If you can't tell, Ladoris is a bit of a force to be reckoned with. She's broken barriers across race and gender. She's a fierce advocate for police oversight. And she's not afraid to voice her opinion, even when it's unpopular. In 2016, Ladoris came under fire when she spoke out against the recall of the judge in the Brock Turner case. Her reasoning was lost on a lot of people, liberals especially. Here's a clip of her discussing her position on NPR.
3: I am against the recall for a number of reasons, the first of which is that I believe it is a dangerous threat to the independence of the judiciary. I believe this recall is terrible for racial justice. It sends a message to every judge on every court in California, and really beyond. And so a lot of the defendants are young people and mostly males of color, Latino and African-American. They are the ones who are going to receive the sentencings of these judges who are going to be hesitant, if not fearful, to impose a leniency in a sentence. And I'm very concerned about what's happening in this country. Starting with the administration in Washington, it's had a trickle-down effect where the judiciary is now targeted by those who just think, well, judges are not doing what we want, so let's just toss them all out. The whole legitimacy of our judiciary is at stake here.
2: Now back to my conversation with LaDoris. <laughs> and you went out on a limb and you got pushback. So, I mean, that just proves how unfearful you are and you're kind of a disruptor.
3: Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I've never been called a disruptor. You're really <laughs> the first to do that. I mean, I've...
2: the Uber of the judiciary.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like it all. Yeah. I like it.
2: LaDoris is one of the most impressive people I've ever talked to. And on top of everything else, she's also an accomplished musician, artist, and she's a fixture with the Commonwealth Club. Check out more at judgecordell.com. Something I've fully taken advantage of as a songwriter and the son of immigrants in America is the right to free speech. Those First Amendment rights really set America apart, in my opinion. It's what makes us really great. Freedom of religion, freedom of peaceful assembly, freedom of speech, and freedom of press. You can look all over the world and see that authoritarian regimes target the press first. I talked about this with journalist Salem Solomon. She's a reporter with Voice of America's Africa division and has a unique perspective, having also worked for the state-owned media in her native Eritrea.
4: When I was in Eritrea, I wasn't aware of the impact journalism had because I was working in a state-owned media. So we didn't have a say as much. But after leaving the country, I started seeing the value of actual journalism and telling the stories of the most vulnerable, those people who don't have a platform to connect with the world and bring attention to issues that need to be in, you know, policymakers' minds when they're making these decisions and how it affects the daily lives of average people who are powerless. If someone is in public office, they shouldn't have anything to hide. And and it really goes hand in hand with a country enjoying less cases of corruption when there is a fourth estate or a press that really checks what's going on in the interests of the people. And so you have really strong civil liberties for that reason. When you're serving the public, including journalists, by the way, you need to be held to account for what you put out as well. I think it goes both ways.
2: I think you shouldn't have anything to hide.
4: Yeah, exactly. Unless and so, you're
2: a criminal. <laughs>
4: And then that's exactly the value that uh, reporters and the press freedom upholds when you're chasing a story about, um, be it corruption, people who are breaching laws or bending them so that they can suppress uh, without any accountability. Uh, And I think it really applies in all these pillars that we're talking about when we're looking at civil liberties.
2: One of the effects of living in this post-truth, clickbait twitter world we live in is that the integrity of journalism has been dragged through the mud
1: i called the fake news the enemy of the people and they are the
2: amount of work that goes into writing a story fact checking it and making sure you're legally covered to print it is something journalists deal with every day neil doherty is a veteran investigative news journalist who has written for newspapers and created several documentaries for pbs's Frontline including On Our Watch, about the genocide in Darfur, and Putin's Way, which details the Russian president's meteoric rise. I spoke to Neil from his home in Toronto.
0: I actually think the press, and particularly the press in America, is actually doing a pretty good job, given what they're facing with the Trump administration. I think they're actually doing a great job of trying to find out the story and and source them and get to the bottom of the story. I mean, I think we're in need of a great civics lesson at the moment in North America where, you know, if something goes on CNN or the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever newspaper, it has to go through editors. And then it often has to go through lawyers before it can get published. I think there's a great need for understanding what it takes to put an item on air or in a proper newspaper. And people, I think, are losing sight of that. I mean, I've worked with newspapers in Britain. I've worked with the New York Times here. I I mean, I know firsthand how difficult that is to, to get these things on air and prove them. And through the editors and the questions that we get asked and then the legal screenings that go on.
2: Yeah, you don't hear about that from my end, the
0: consumer end, yeah. It's an arduous process. And a lot of things don't get said, not because they're not true, but because perhaps we can't second source them. So, I mean, I've been in hundreds of discussions like that and also asked for material to be withdrawn because of it. Because occasionally it works both ways, where someone in the team wants it on and you have to have adult discussions where you decide, can we actually sustain this and prove it? So I'd like to see people take more cognizance of how hard it is to put these things on air and in print.
2: So have you ever gotten yourself into a, a bit of a vulnerable, potentially scary situation? Maybe you're careful, but you seem to have no fear in certain regards.
0: Well, yeah, we've been in a few uh, scrapes. I must say, I've never looked for any of this, and there are many journalists who've been in many more dangerous situations than I have. But um, the worst was Haiti, and that was the early 90s when Aristide was being returned to power courtesy of American influence Mm -hmm. and military, actually. And we were there just before he was due to come back and they had these very nasty gangs called the uh, what were they called Called the attaches and two incidents about the attaches were uh, were terrible one was I was trying to get an interview with the leader of the attaches and you know when you go abroad in these places you rely on very brave local journalists who we call fixers Mm -hmm. and the fixer in Port-au-Prince in Haiti was a young woman and she said, well, the attaches all hang out on the street in Port-au-Prince, so we can go there if you want, but it's pretty dangerous. So I said, well, let's go and check it out. I went with a crew, a cameraman, a sound man, the driver, and the fixer. And the fixer and I got out of the car, and there was a throng of guys with guns, and talking in the hundreds, and we were sort of weaving through them, trying to find the leader who we find. And I'm now in discussions with the leader, trying to arrange an interview. And there's a guy behind me screaming and letting off his rifle into the air. I'm quite prone to noise, loud noise. I don't like loud noises. I remember turning to her exasperated and said, what is that guy saying? And she said, he's saying, let's shoot these shit now. Which, apart from the alliteration was pretty scary <laughs> so i took it we just kept talking to buddy the chief and he agreed to be interviewed we probably might not get shot before the interview and that's pretty well what happened he agreed to be interviewed and and um we were able to weave our way out of there and to the crews get credit they could see there was a problem and they came out of the van towards us to try and help us sort of make a space to get back to the van. So that was pretty scary. And the trouble with these guys is, they're completely drugged up. They were paid with drugs. And the next day, I remember we were doing a stand up with a reporter in front of the American embassy in Port-au-Prince, announcing what was happening. And, and I think the next day, the military were all due to Orion. Anyway, this group of attaches turned the corner in a jeep, bristling with arms. And they jump out of the jeep, and they, they put a gun on all of us. And in my case, the gun was right on my nose. And remember, it is a terrifying experience to look down the barrel of a gun. That's an, a terrifying experience in and of itself. But to do it, and see the guy's eyes like saucers, and understand he's completely drugged, And if he blows you away, he probably won't even remember it. Wow, and I do think back to that and think I was very, very lucky to get out of there because you're I, at the whim of somebody's yeah, crazy high. Yeah, and 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 that is a, I mean, that is a really salutary experience. You don't want to do too much of that.
2: Neil told me a lot of crazy stories during our conversation. And he kept saying the worst was this and the worst was that. It just goes to show how many crazy situations journalists put themselves in all around the world.
0: I was trying to do a film on the genocide in Darfur. We were accused of spying. By who? By the Chadian government. And so we're under house arrest for about 10 days. And it took a lot of manoeuvring to get us out and to get our Sudanese fixer out. So after escaping Chad, I did have to have a conversation with Sarah, my wife, about going back because there were 10 days there when it, it looked pretty bad. I and mean, I did go back and we did make a film. So it took two trips to complete it. Two trips, yeah. You know, it was a genocide and we wanted to tell the story. So I think you also have to weigh how important is the story as to how much danger you're prepared to put yourself in.
2: It was one of the stories of the decade, in my opinion, and almost all but forgotten in many circles today.
0: Oh, well, thank you. It's very important. I remember writing a line there about a blind man. A poor fellow, you know, was chased out of Sudan. He was blind. His wife had been killed. He was there with his two children. And he was waiting in a refugee camp very near the border, and they were very fearful that the Janjaweed were, were... committing terror all over southern Sudan. So the Janjaweed were about to come. And I remember writing the line, if hell has a waiting room, it must surely look like this.
2: I remember that line, yeah. Very troubling, very sad. Half of that story is about Darfur and Sudanese government and the refugees. But the other half is the impotence of the UN. Yeah. And that was just as heartbreaking because the writing is on the wall about things going on now, Myanmar and the Rohingya or Yemen, and just how effective are they and what are they there to That's do. Right. Um,
0: and how empty never again has become as a promise. It certainly has a hollow ring to it, in a way.
2: Having traveled the world as an investigative journalist, Neil knows what democracy looks like, and he also knows what it doesn't look like.
0: Well, I think one of my great worries is, in traveling the world and looking at various countries, and many of them have been in a sorry state, and certainly many of them have not been democratic, is actually how the paucity of democracy that there is in this world and the lack of good governance wherever you go. I mean, if you think about it, you have Western Europe, North America, and one or two other countries. There's not that much. I mean, China is obviously an authoritarian state. Russia's a kleptocracy. India is a democracy for sure but the corruption is rife and it's always on the knife edge as to whether that's going to be solved or not so that's a lot of humanity just in that and then you're in countries like Chad or elsewhere where there's no semblance of democracy at all and all of them are marked by no free press, violence against journalists, jailing and killing of journalists, no real opposition, no real elections and terrible poverty and great inequality. These are qualities you find wherever you travel in the world that doesn't have democracy. I mean, people suffer as a result. And I have to say there's too much of that around. I mean, it's overwhelming sometimes how little decent governance there is, how little even a semblance of decent governance there is in this world now. And it's really a worry. We tend to think democracy is baked into the system and can't be undone, and I'm not so sure that's true. I think it can be undone and could be undone.
2: Up next, I'll break down the song you've been hearing throughout the episode Can't Nobody Stop Us. But first, a recommendation of another podcast I think you'll enjoy. Hey, this is Chris Jacobs, host of The Shift List, a new podcast where chefs talk about the music that fills their kitchens, restaurants, and recipes. From L.A. to Copenhagen, music inspires some of the world's greatest chefs to push further into their creativity and deliver exciting new dishes. Discover new music every week from the people who use it in their kitchens every day, before, during, and after a shift on the Shiftless podcast, available now from BGS wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You might be thinking that I wrote this song in response to Trump, but you'd be wrong. I wrote this song in 2009, and it was in response to the Sri Lankan president and war crimes and atrocities that took place under his watch. But this song is is really a military march. It's like a dictator's inauguration. I had these two chords. Chords were just chunking along. And the bass line was kind of this intertwined locomotive engine. And I always look for that sort of synergy, you know what I'm saying? Like Each thing is playing off each other. And in recording this song, I did something I don't do often, which is loop a section and jam over it on the guitar until I come up with, you know, the parts. It was actually really fun, really spur of the moment, really fast. It took like 10 minutes of me looping. And a long time ago I had heard this song called Habibi by Ali Hassan Kuban. I don't know if I'm saying his last name right. K U B A N. And then I popped back up in this movie that Sasha Baron Cohen did called The Dictator and it must have played in somehow because the beat is um, the drum beat is pretty similar one of the bands that meant a lot to me growing up was Rage Against the Machine I had never seen anything like them before and this song really reminds me of of Rage for whatever reason Um, maybe you hear it too It's sung in the first person because sometimes I feel like I can say a lot more interesting things uh, by taking the role of the bad guy. And so in this song, I'm I'm the dictator. You know, I say lines like um, journalists in prison, prison, the the talking heads they warn us, us. the the typing hands prescribe kind of like a nod to the news media and and print media and the talking heads now here's the full song be sure to come back next week we're talking about voter suppression and the multi-pronged attack on voting in america our guests are dale ho director of the ACLU's Voting Rights Project, and Taz Ahmed of 18 Million Rising in the Good Muslim, Bad Muslim podcast. If you're enjoying the show so far, please rate us on iTunes. It helps us find listeners. Peace of Mind is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency. Our producers are Katie Ross, Jen Rice, and Amy Westervelt. All music for the show is written and performed by me, D. Beeman. Sound design and mix by John Shamia. Additional editing by Finn Matthews. For bonus material and to support the show, please head to peaceofmindpod.com. You can also support us by leaving us a five-star rating and review on your favorite podcast app. And join us next week for some Peace of Mind.